And hello Lighthouse, good to see you once again. For those of you who are following on YouTube or on our channel, we're glad to see you again this week. We are in our Bibles in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through to 22. We're going to be talking about the truth about false teachers. It's actually a rather difficult passage which talks about a lot of things. But let me give you a forewarning at the beginning. We're going to deal with a lot of things that really are what you would say are not tolerant. In an age of tolerance, it's hard to appreciate what Peter is saying about false teachers. It comes across as critical, harsh, insensitive, something that society today would say is inappropriate. Uh, Stephen Cole says, because tolerance has become a chief virtue by our culture, and because culture has always creeps into the church, the church today is decidedly against anything that smacks of judgment or criticism of those who claim to be evangelicals. Yeah, that's quite a thought. So our evangelical culture has fallen morally lax uh, culture by mistaking God's grace to mean that we get a daily allotment of free passes from God when we sin and it's no big deal. We wrongly think that grace really means that God is like an indulgent parent who really isn't bothered by our sin. In contrast, today's focus is much narrower and in a sense that God is going to come out through Peter and challenging us about the aspect that these, the lifestyles of these false teachers and preachers in that day were really ones that God called out judgment on, especially Peter. He's concerned, Peter, in writing this book, he's concerned as a pastor would be about what's happening to the young evangelicals, the young people in their church, young Christians being misled by bad doctrine and being led away from Christ. These verses challenge us not only to not only follow, in a sense, false teachers, but to be on guard against that which encourages us to be lax in regards to sin. And as we go to God's word, let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word to our hearts today. And Lord, I just pray that you'll bring to memory the things that I've studied and that you'll use them, Lord, to impact the lives of the hearers. So Lord, bless your word today, I pray, and I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We pick up in your Bibles, 2 Peter 2, the last part of verse 10 through to 22. We'll read these words. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willfully, he's talking about the false teachers here, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They kind of pleasure to revel in the daytime, there are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They follow the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice, and restrain the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice 
sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overtakes a person to that, he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has actually become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to the wallow to wallow in the mire. Rather interesting reading from Scripture. Uh, the broad outline of these teachers is easy to see. They're bold. They're arrogant. Their audacity really kind of blows Peter away as he looks at how they live and what they're saying. They slander, slander celestial beings. Uh, and so you see that man's fallen nature really encourages pride. When the ego is at stake, false teachers will stop at nothing in order to promote as well as protect themselves. So their attitude is completely opposite of the Lord who emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant as we see in Philippians 2. The men that Peter described are presumptuous, which means they were daring and bold in the way they spoke in their positions about those things that should have had been more revered. Sometimes there's a boldness that we see in society that's heroic, but sometimes there's a boldness that is satanic, and that's what we see here in this passage. We see in verse 11, it says, Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. He's comparing them to the angels that serve the Lord. He's saying that these holy angels, in contrast to the false teachers, don't even bring a reviling judgment against fallen angels. Jude 9 actually is more specific. We read these words, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Uh, Jude is already referring to what we call an ancient story called the Assumption of Moses, in which the devil argues with Michael about the body of Moses and the right to have an honorable burial because he had actually murdered an Egyptian. But rather than rebuking the devil directly, Michael appeared to the Lord to rebuke him, and the devil fled so that Michael could complete the burial process. And that's taken from the New American Commentary uh, on First, Second Peter and Jude. Michael, the angel, he said, the archangel, did not dare bring a reviling judgment against the devil. He said, the Lord rebuke you. But these daring, arrogant teachers who are falsely leading the children of God astray thought they were more powerful than Satan and the demons, and they had no qualms about reviling them. So Peter refers to these fallen angels as glories in this passage, even though they are evil because they have impressive power. Jesus even called Satan the ruler of this world in John 12, verse 31. We do not need to fear the devil as believers in Christ, but we should always respect his power. In Christ, with our spiritual armor in place, we can stand firm against the devil and ask God to rebuke him. And the next couple of weeks, you're going to learn about the spiritual warfare as Jim Hubert brings that out, one of our elders. But again, a reminder that Satan is not to be taken lightly. In verse 12, we pick up these words. 
But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Peter means these men have abandoned their God-given rational ability and have followed their lust instinctively like animals. That's quite a description for false teachers, you would say. Yes, but he's calling them out. And we're going to tell you why he's calling them out like that. He says they were controlled by their feelings and not by reason informed by God's word of truth. The last phrase will be, well, the, the, in regards to this, will in destruction of these creatures also be destroyed refers to God's final judgment on fallen angels. He said they will be judged. And then it reminds us of that passage in the book of Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, where we read, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And what God is saying specifically in that aspect is that when you live your life in such a way as to dishonor God, and God says, you know what? you're going to suffer the consequences of the life you've lived. Then we see in verse 13, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Peter goes on to describe these false teachers. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Most people who sin really sin at night. When their evil deeds may be hidden by darkness, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 7. But these evil teachers throw off all restraints. Again, Peter's focus is on their lifestyle. And the basic gist is what he's saying is, when you see wrong doctrine, wrong teaching, it reveals itself an ungodly, unholy living. Sin attracts with offer of pleasure, but in the end, those who indulge it find no pleasure at all. Sometimes we think, well, I sometimes wish I could just live my life on my terms, and that means sometimes willfully sinning and doing that which is wrong. He said, I would never admit that, but sometimes you feel like, I wish I could do it, but there's always consequences for sin. And so I put up a, uh, uh, this aspect that when he talks about this sinful pleasure, it really was us talking about this hedonism. Hedonism says, isn't sin wonderful? The principle here is that sin always brings its own destruction. God does not vindictively punish sin, although he will punish all sin someday. For sin brings on its own punishment. Or as the Bible puts it, your sin will find you out. There's always a consequence. It's not a popular message. It's something maybe we struggle with. But the thing is, we have to have this clarity in our understanding in our uh, interpretation of Scripture, that when God says sin is wrong, we get that. And any kind of teaching that leads us to laxness in our spiritual and in our moral lives, and specifically in your moral behavior, is wrong. There's only one genuine life, and that is God's way. And all independence from God leads to corruption and destruction. Do you hear me? All independence from God leads to corruption and destruction within one's life. Wrong doctrine always leads to wrong living. And that's why it's so important to teach proper 
biblical doctrine from God's Word on a daily basis. That's why we, we open the scriptures, we teach. This is then how you should live. This is how you ought to live your life in such a way as to honor and glorify God. Because when you live life on your own terms, there's consequences. And again, as I said, independence from God leads to corruption. It leads to a lot of other issues. In verse 14, he goes on to describe these false teachers. In a scathing review, he says this, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. The word adultery in this passage really means adulteress. The idea is that these false teachers looked at every woman as a potential candidate to go to bed with. That was what they were doing. They preyed on unstable souls, new professing Christians who were emotionally and spiritually shaky. And I can tell you that the cults will prey upon new believers who are not grounded in the faith, and they will say, here's what we can show you from God's Word, and they try to reinterpret what you believe from God's Word, and they lead many young believers astray because they're not grounded in God's word. So, not only were these false teachers living to fulfill their lusts, they were also driven by greed. We get the word gymnasium, the idea that they were training for the word trained. The idea is these guys really, in a sense, worked out to get their hearts in shape for greed. They are called accursed, Peter says, and they were destined for hell. <clears throat> That's really calling him out. I can imagine the people in that day listening to Peter's message and going, well, he's really mad. He's really upset, but he's calling out these false teachers and saying, look at their lifestyle. Look at their behavior, and you can tell they're not centered on biblical doctrine. In verse 12, pardon me, verse 15, we read this. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. These men are continually making a conscious, volitional, willful choice to abandon the right way, the straight path that Scripture teaches us. Departing from the straight path, they chose the crooked path. To depart from the path implies they sought or knew about it, but simply they chose to depart from the truth and teach false lies. And folks, we have a lot of that going on today where people feel that they have the basic ability to interpret Scripture and which allows them to live a licentious lifestyle with greater freedoms than Scripture ever intended. And that happens over and over again. When you read in Scripture about the story of Balaam in Numbers 23 and 24, he seems at first to be kind of an okay guy, this Balaam. He's a prophet and he claims that he won't say or do anything unless God permits it. Sounds pretty good, right? But really, he was a cunning, self-seeking man who uses prophetic powers to line his own pocket. In other words, I'll do what I want as long as I can get rich off this preaching and teaching that I'm doing, this prophecy. So he used the gifts that God had placed in his life for his own purposes to make himself look good and to be rich. And when God would allow him to curse Israel, as the Moabite king had wanted him to do, he instead advised the king to get his women to seduce the Israelite men. And that's called the sin of Balaam. You'll notice that all throughout Scripture. So he said, I can't curse the nation of Israel, but tell you what. And he said to the king, he said, tell you what. If you get your women to 
and get involved with the Israelite men, you'll wreck what God is trying to do in their lives. And boy, does that even happen today. So these false teachers imitated Balaam, he says, in both their greed and enticing people to sensuality. In verse 16, we said, but speaking of Balaam, he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Peter adds that Balaam received a rebuke for his own transgression <clears throat> through a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man and restrained the madness of the prophet. If you remember the story of Balaam, it's rather intriguing that the prophet was pushing, 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 and the donkey finally stopped in his tracks and spoke to him about the angel of the Lord that was standing in the way to kill Balaam because of his disobedience to God's command. Go back to Numbers 23 and 24. Read it for yourselves. I think Peter intended a little bit of humor here in that a dumb donkey had more spiritual insight than the greedy prophet did. And when Peter calls him mad, he means that anyone who pursues greed and sensuality is crazy. Because you're really going after the wages of unrighteousness. And when that happens, it results in God's judgment. We talked about last week, God judges sin. That has not changed. Then we see in verse 17, he says this, They are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. These false teachers claim that you follow our teaching, follow our ways, it will quench your thirst. But really, these false teachers did not deliver. These men were eloquent and permissive. That's one thing you need to know about false teachers. They come across, they look like really nice guys. They seem very caring, very loving, very nice. But that's what Satan uses to seduce and trip up the people of God into believing they're really nice. But listen to their words. Look at their lifestyle. And it'll show you their error. And rather than calling people to holiness and love for God, they appealed to fleshly lusts and greed. They told them that God didn't want them to deprive themselves of the pleasure of sexuality. They said, we're under grace, we're free from the law, so go ahead, indulge yourselves, live life on your own terms, God's okay with it. But let me tell you, God is not okay with it. With all false teaching, there's both truth and error mingled together in those statements. And that's what we have to be a guard against, these false teachers. They will take aspects of God's word which you'll go like, hey, that's really right on. But then you'll listen further and you'll find out they'll mix error with it. And that's been Satan's ploy from the very beginning. When Satan appealed to Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, he took truth and he took error, mixed it together to dupe Eve into sinning against God, as well as Adam. And so, in the context, sex is a great gift to be enjoyed that God has given mankind. But taken out of that concept, just to fulfill lust, it leads to slavery, it leads to sin. The world has sometimes psychologized lust as sexual addiction. 
but Peter calls it a slave of corruption. Same is true when a person would yields to greed, often expressed by excessive gambling or stealing in that regard. We see he's not addicted as though he were the victim of a disease. Rather, he has willingly become the slave of sin. That's what Scripture teaches. That's not what our world teaches, and that's not what false teachers teach. Beware of any teaching that appeals to your fleshly desires outside of the boundaries that God has prescribed for your proper enjoyment. Follow what Scripture teaches, my friend. Sex and material things have their proper place in balance within the context and guidelines of God's Word. But when they become the consuming object of our lives, we fall and pray to false teaching. We pick it up in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the last. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What that true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Uh, the question is, do these verses refer to false teachers or to those who follow them? Probably due to the context, I think, the focus is really mainly on false teachers. It also applies to those who fall for their deceptive teaching. For a while they'd escaped the defilements of the world by knowing Christ as Lord and Savior. Peter compares it, though, to a dog returning to its vomit or a pig washing, uh, returning to its mire. Peter may have meant a couple of things when he says the latter state is worse than the first. It may be worse if a person has heard the gospel and has some experience in the Christian life. It'll be more difficult for them to restore them to a, a true knowledge of Jesus Christ because they, perhaps they've tasted, they've experienced some of the Christian life, but they haven't fully committed their lives to Jesus Christ. If you talk to them what it means to follow Christ, they'll say to you, been there, done that, done that already, and nothing changed. Because they've never fully given their lives over to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I don't believe they're fully saved. They're not truly saved. Peter also may mean that their latter state is worse than the first because everyone, according to Scripture, will be judged on the amount of light that they have rejected. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 21 and 24, God says that we will be held accountable for what we know. So if you know the Scriptures to be true and you don't live for them, by them, you will be judged by them. That's why some groups will actually say, don't learn too much about the Bible because everything you learn, you're going to be held accountable for it, so better not to know much. We're still going to be held accountable, my friend. These people have exposed, been exposed to a lot of truth but they turn their backs on it to pursue their own sinful lusts. And God says through the Apostle Peter, they will be judged accordingly. Uh, somebody asked, well, it sounds like, does, does a believer lose their salvation as a result of this? To ask if a believer will lose his salvation is actually the wrong question. What we need to say is, the right question is, what does it mean to be a true believer in Christ, or what is true saving faith? In a nutshell, when God saves you, He changes your heart. He imparts new life to you. Your desires are changed. Now you love God and you seek to please Him. You want to grow to know Him. You love His Word. You hate sin and strive against it to be holy, to be like Christ wants you to be. 
In other words, genuine saving faith always results in a life growing in godliness and obedience to Jesus Christ. If that's not your experience, I think you need to go back and make sure that God has truly changed your heart through faith in Jesus Christ. Not something that you uh, thought, well, I can uh, accept Christ on my own terms and I can live for him the way I want. And uh, that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel at all. Some people say, well, all, all I need to do is receive Christ as my Lord and Savior, and then I can live life on my terms. That's not the gospel. That's not what Scripture teaches. That's a false gospel. It's not true. So, well, Pastor, what are you saying here through this passage? Well, let me put it this way. He's challenging us, Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not to follow false teachers. Why? He says, look at their lifestyle. Look at the way they live. And we have examples of that in multitudes, even today in our society, where those who profess to teach the scriptures are promoting a wealth, health, and prosperity gospel. And you look at their lavish lifestyles, and you look what they're piling up for themselves, and you say to yourselves, as a result of what I see in that person's lifestyle, I know that they're not preaching the truth. They're giving a little bit of it, or they're perverting the truth, but it's not fully what the gospel teaches, the word of God teaches. So what's that mean for me? I need to be on guard as a believer in Christ to make sure that what I hear and what I listen to matches up with the Word of God. I, like to be, I need to be like the Bereans who check God's Word daily to see, is this correct? Does this measure up with Scripture? If it doesn't, throw it away. Don't listen to it. Turn it off. Whatever it takes. The other aspect, too, that it's saying is that as believers, we need to be grounded in God's Word. Because if you're grounded... In God's word, you'll be able to discern what's right, what's wrong. Why is Peter so excited and upset at this time? He's a pastor. And you know what the most devastating thing is? When as a pastor, you work with people to put their faith and trust in Christ, you share the good news of Christ, you pour into their lives, and you watch them often follow off on false teaching, leave the church, and pursue false teachers, pursue false leaders who have a new bent or vision on God's word. And as a result, it leads to a licentious lifestyle. And you look at this person down the road and you go like, look what happened because of these false teachers who really don't give a rip about people's souls. They're all about living for themselves. So what, what can I say to you this morning? Be on guard, stand fast, be steadfast in prayer, be steadfast in the word, be steadfast in your attendance at church. Follow Jesus fully, and then you will be prepared for what comes. Because all of us, my friend, will be tested. We'll be tested. And as a result of that, how can I do my best to stand the tests and the trials that are going to come my way through sometimes through false teaching? By knowing the true, inspired, inerrant Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word to our hearts. Lord, quite a scathing rebuke that we see from the Apostle Peter as he lays out the lifestyles of these teachers that have misled the church and misled many believers. Father, help us as your, those who follow after you, Father, to be on guard, to be steadfast in the Word, and grant us the discernment of the Spirit of God to discern what's right and what's wrong. So Lord, lead us, direct us, and protect us from the evil one. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. My friend, God bless you. Have a great week. 
We'll see you next Sunday.